The reading is from Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you, Sue. Matthew gives us lots of detail in the lead-up to the resurrection. We know where the body is buried, and we know who buried him. We know there were guards placed around the tomb, and the chief priests engineered some fake news about the resurrection. We know the women were the first to encounter Jesus, and we're told the women were sent to tell the disciples that Jesus had written from the dead, dead. But Matthew then only records one thing that Jesus says. We know Jesus was alive, was, was, was resurrected for 40 days, 500 people saw him, but Matthew chooses to record only one thing. These words of Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I think Matthew writes this in such a way as to suggest these are the final words of Jesus. Now, I don't mean final as in these were the last words he uttered. What I mean is as in final, as in definitive. Now, those of you that have been in church for some time are probably sitting here thinking, oh no, he's going to nag me about evangelism. And I don't like doing that. I don't like talking to people about Jesus. And I think if we're all honest, we probably all feel the same way. However, I'm hugely humbled by the early church. They'd just seen Jesus executed, their leader, on a trumped-up charge. They knew being a Christian wasn't safe. We've seen the bit of fake news that was being circulated by the priests. They were out to quash the early church. They employed people like Saul to go and arrest Christians, and we know of Stephen being stoned to death, and we believe the majority of the disciples were killed for their faith. And then you've got the Romans, who would crush anyone who undermined the Roman authorities. And then AD 54 to 68, we get that horrendous emperor Nero. There was a fire in Rome in AD 64, and he made the Christians the scapegoat for the fire. And they went through unimaginable persecution and suffering. Being a Christian was not a safe thing at that time. Now, it's believed that Matthew wrote his gospel somewhere AD 70 to 90. I'm not an expert, but that's what I've read. Which suggests that he was aware of the persecution the church was going through at that time. So what did he think was important, the most important thing to tell them? The bit that we've just read. Which is also why I think Matthew chooses to include the words of encouragement that Jesus said, either side of the command. The first thing he says is, all authority is given on heaven and earth to me. Note the word all. Not some, not for a period of time, not on a particular matter. Given to me. We often find ourselves asking, what's God's will? What does God want us to do? When we say, thy will be done in the Lord's Prayer, what is thy will that we want done? Well, we probably have a clue in what Matthew has recorded of what Jesus said. Because after the all authority is given on heaven and earth, to me, he says, therefore. God's authority, God, God through his authority is speaking through Jesus to us to go and make disciples. It's a very clear instruction. It's clearly what Matthew wanted the early church to be left with when they finished reading his gospel. The second word of encouragement we get comes sort of at the end, doesn't it? And it's one that lots of us quote, and I quote a lot. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. We love this verse, don't we? 
You know, it's saying, telling us the Holy Spirit is with us always. And that is absolutely true. But how many times do we quote it in context with what comes before? In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus also says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is not just a comfort. He is a comfort. But he also gives us the power to be witnesses, to tell others of who Jesus is. Archbishop Justin Welby puts it like this. The instruction to wait for the Holy Spirit is so important because without the Spirit's empowering presence, it's impossible to be a faithful witness to Christ. We need this gift of the Father to be the people Christ is calling us to be. The Spirit then isn't for some private experience, but for the sake of our life for Christ in the world. You see, God wants people to discover his grace and love. It's why he sent Jesus. It's also one of the key reasons he gives us the Holy Spirit, because it's not something we're expected to do to convince others. God convinces others through his Holy Spirit and the way he works in us. A couple of points about the command we're given. The first thing is, I have seen it said that this was a command given to the disciples. Yeah? But that doesn't quite work as it just applies to the disciples because towards the end it then says, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So it's to be handed down this message. So the disciples were to go out and make disciples and teach those disciples to go out and make disciples. So it's something for us too. The other interesting thing is it doesn't use the word believers. He uses the word disciples. Because you can believe something intellectually, but it doesn't mean you're a follower of Jesus. You've heard it said, even the devil believes Jesus is the Son of God. We're called to live under the lordship of Christ. So, what does that mean for us? This is all good theological stuff, and it all seems to make sense. But how do we do it here at Shirley? What does it look like? Our banner here, we've moved it forward, and hopefully you can read it on the screen. Welcome, love, challenge, grow. It's how we sort of describe how we want to do the Great Commission, how we want to go and make disciples in accordance with Jesus' request. So let's see what that might look like. Welcome. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. The issue at the time in the early church was that their perception was this was really just for the Jews or for those Gentiles that were willing to become Jews and then Christians. But no, it's for all nations. It was for Gentiles as well as Jews. It was even for the Romans who were persecuting them at the time. This tells me this is not an exclusive message. It is for everyone. It's for all nations It's for all genders. It doesn't matter what ethnic background you've got. It doesn't matter who your parents are. 
it actually doesn't matter how you identify yourself or whether you claim to have a different sexual orientation. God's message of love and grace is for everyone. Even for people we don't believe in our heart of hearts would come to Christ. Whether that's North Korea, Afghanistan, the residents of Sparkbrook, or the atheist that lives next door, or the member of our family that has a go at us about what we believe. God's grace is for everyone. And our job here at Shirley is to make them feel welcome. We want this to be a safe place where people can come and explore for themselves faith, Jesus. They can ask questions. They can make mistakes. They can disagree with us. That's okay. Because we are all sinners saved by the grace of God. And we have a message not only of welcome, but we also have a message of restoration and forgiveness. Kerry Newhoff is a Canadian pastor, he's an author, with a real focus on how he can help create healthy Christian leaders and healthy churches. That's primarily what his desire is. And he talks about where churches really start to engage with their community, people who aren't Christians. He says, this is what you will find. As you engage more and more with unchurched people, you will realize that your neat and tidy theological and sociological categories for people will erode and collapse as you realize we're all just people in need of a savior. LGBTQ plus will stop being a term and start becoming people. Rich and poor will become names and faces. Conversations about racism will strike a personal chord with members of your congregation. That doesn't mean our theology changes, but it probably means our compassion will. And it likely means that our easy answers instead become involved conversations. We want people to feel welcome. We want people to feel safe. The second one on our list here is love. And for me, I put that, go and make disciples. How do I mean by that? Well, Jesus has another command in John which relates to this. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Introducing people to the God of love, helping them discover God, a God who loves them more than they can imagine in the way that we treat them, in the way that we serve and support them. It's why we do many of the things we do here because we have experienced God's grace and love and we want others to know that grace and love too. But it's not just actions. It's easy for us to sit here and, and, and do great stuff, to run youth clubs, to have a coffee shop. But people's knowledge of God is, for the, the main, very little. 
In fact, many people in their family can, the last person that went to church in their family may be several generations ago. And the problem is, if we don't tell them about Jesus, if we don't explain the motivation behind what we do, they think we're good people. They think it's us. They don't realize it's the God that's put a burden on our hearts. I once, Sue and I, for a period of time, um, went to India for a few weeks to help out in a school for street kids. And I was traveling on a, in a taxi with some colleagues from work to a, a, a charity event uh, related to India as well. And they were saying they couldn't do the stuff that Sue and I did, that they were really impressed with what we did. And I said, well, we enjoy it. You know, it's a real challenge. It's good to go out and do those things. But I just left them with the impression that Sue and I were really good people. I didn't talk about the burden that God had put on our hearts and the opportunity to serve him. They didn't appreciate the motivation that we had because I wasn't willing to talk about that part at that time. So it's important that not only we love people, but that we explain about the God who loves them and loves us that we have discovered. You know, we can do that through our testimony. We can do that by being real about our walk with God, with people, the good stuff and the bad stuff. You know, we can talk about our doubts with people. It doesn't matter. Because it means that we're being genuine and real. Because we have discovered something genuine and real. We run Alpha. We can invite people to a Sunday service like this. We can invite them to our home group. Where they can discover something of who Jesus is. And we can just talk openly and honestly about the God we love. And then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For me, this is the challenge piece. This is about getting people to a point where they can make a decision for him. But it's not about coercion. This is not about us putting pressure on people. This is about us creating space to reflect and think through what we have discovered for ourselves. And supporting and loving them regardless of the response they choose to make to that. Michael Harvey came to see us a few years ago, encouraging us to invite people to church. But he gave us a picture of a clock as a way of thinking about how people come to faith. If you imagine one minute past the hour, someone doesn't know anything about God or faith. And one minute to the hour is the point they're about to step into the pool of baptism. And although some people move around that clock very quickly, possibly in an hour, we do hear these amazing stories, for the vast majority of people, they move slowly around. And our job is just to help people perhaps make that next step. So the challenge for some people might be just to come back again. Or might be just to think about a God for the first time. The other thing about challenge is it's, great to, it's good to create opportunities for people to reflect. So while we have the Alpha Away Day, while we often have a challenge at the end of a service, gives people space to think and reflect in the busyness of life, in the mobile phones, the information overload. Let's create space for people. The final one on our list here is Grow. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You see, believing something and conversion isn't the end. 
it's not enough. That's why it's go make disciples. What we want to do is to help people work out how they can live under the Lordship of Christ. Encouraging them when they get things right. And supporting and loving them when they get it wrong. And restoring them. I've got down here, discipleship is about persistence in following Jesus for me. Even when it gets tough, even when it's difficult. And we do this in community. We do this together. It's why church is so, so important. On a Sunday, we encourage each other. We support each other. That's why home groups are a great idea. Because again, it's a place where you can learn and support and love each other. It's also important to spend time with God in prayer yourself and with his word as you think through things. And serving God. You know, that might be Kairos, that might be in youth groups, that might be in Sunday school. It might be outside of the church, doing something else. I've personally found that really helpful as I grow in my faith. And just being friends with people, encouraging them. So hopefully, you've seen how we're looking to discharge the Great Commission at Shirley Baptist Church. Welcome, love, challenge, grow. And hopefully that feels a little less scary than you need to go out and evangelize people. Thinking back to our clock analogy. Welcome, love, challenge, grow is not a one-off thing that happens. It's not part of the clock. Imagine it happens lots of times around. The first time you welcome somebody in they might experience something of God's love for the first time and at their response is, actually, this isn't a bad place. I thought Christians were very judgmental. They're not. I've discovered something new. And the grow is that knowledge. And the next time, we want to welcome them again. We want to demonstrate more of God's love. And progressively, as they go through that loop time and time again, they'll grow in their knowledge of God they'll start to take steps that bring them to that point of knowing God. They may also take some steps back, and that is okay too. So what are we being called to do? To welcome people unconditionally. To love people and demonstrate God's love both in our words and our actions. We then want to create opportunities for people to respond to what they've learned And when they make that response, we want to support them in growing and moving forward. So it wouldn't be a sermon for me without giving you some homework. So a little take home. The hardest thing is, isn't it, is when someone asks you a question about your faith and you sort of get caught out and you're not sure what to say. So what I'm going to do is suggest that you create a little bit of time this week and think about how you would answer the question, why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus? Now, I don't want a clever theological answer. It doesn't matter if that's when you first made a decision, that's how you describe it, or it's what it's like now today. Or it's, I've known that for the whole of my life. 
it doesn't matter. What I want you to do is to think about what it really means to you. So that when a colleague or someone asks you the question, you don't have a mad panic. You have an answer to give them. Thank you.